before we get started today, we wanted to let everyone know that this episode will be talking about a more intense topic, talking about abortion. If this is a sensitive topic or if there are younger ears listening in, we invite you to perhaps have a friend listen to it first or perhaps sit it out and we'll see you next episode. Welcome to Beggar's Bread, a podcast where we invite Christians and truth seekers to engage with thoughtful sources in an age of disinformation. Our name is inspired from the quote by D.T. Niles, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Each week, we recommend a source for you, either a sermon, podcast, or video. This week, we bring you Nuance Ground Zero. And with that, this is Luke in Wisconsin, and I'm here with Nick in North Carolina. How's it going, Nick? Hey, it's going well. Glad to be here. That's, that's good to hear. I just learned that Nick has a another cat at home, Luna, and... While we were getting ready, I heard her in the background, but I don't know if we'll hear her today. But besides if Luna... lucky, she will not be screaming. <laughs> that's true. And this week, we're actually joined today by a guest, Ashley in Hawaii. How's it going, Ashley? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And our listeners are probably wondering who in the world, who's Ashley from Hawaii? And we're glad you asked. Uh, I met Ashley Barheit through a mutual friend. She is the founder and director of Ohana Pregnancy Center in Hilo, Hawaii. And as we've been preparing for talking about abortion, I've often near constantly been asking her for insight, texting her saying, hey, is this is this correct? Just asking her about different articles and percentages, facts. And eventually I was like, actually, would you want to join us? Because it would be great to have somewhat of expertise. So Thank you so much for joining us today, Ashley. My pleasure. And before talking about our recommendation for a resource today, because um, we are going to mention a specific video, would you tell us a little bit about your work at Ohana Pregnancy Center and who you're serving and how you do it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like he said, um, I'm, my name is Ashley. I'm married to my cooler half, Kyle. We've been together for seven years. We're high school sweethearts, and we have two very high energy but adorable daughters. They're five and one. And like you said, I lead the Ohana Pregnancy Center of East Hawaii here in Hilo on the Big Island, and I'm also a emergency room nurse. So you could say I have a bit of a adrenaline rush problem. Um, Ohana Pregnancy Center is one of over 2,500 pregnancy centers across the United States. There's actually more pregnancy centers than abortion clinics in the U.S. at this time. And we offer free and confidential services with the goal of educating and loving women, men, and families to empower them to choose life for their children. We do this by offering pregnancy testing, ultrasounds, education, material assistance, and follow-up care to get them established with a prenatal provider. The average woman choosing abortion makes the decision within a day of confirming her pregnancy and typically obtains abortion within the next week if that is her ultimate decision. So what we do is we try to get women in that early window, get them to confirm their pregnancy with the pregnancy test and ultrasound, and then help them walk through their pregnancy options. We do that by making sure it's client-led and client-empowered. We just provide the education for them. Um, most women have an abortion. The most commonly cited reason is a financial difficulty. So we spend a lot of time working with women um, to help them find financial assistance. 
Our vision at the center is to empower whole and healed families in our community. 86% of women who have had an abortion uh, were unmarried at the time of the abortion, so we spend a lot of time doing education about the importance of marriage and stable relationships. And nearly 4 in 10 women indicate that the father of the baby was the most influential person in their uh, abortion decision. And in the U.S., we've done such a huge disservice to men and fathers, and so we spend a lot of time with fatherhood programs, empowering men to help their women choose life for their child. Um, in the state of Hawaii, about 20% of all pregnancies end in abortion, and so we have a fairly high rate here, and we have fairly loose laws, which gives us a great uh, battleground to work with with our clients. Um, but I'm so happy to be here to talk about this from a Christian perspective, from someone that's on the ground. I have a disclaimer, um, if you want information about any of the statistics that I share today or any of the resources, um, just shoot me an email at ohanapregnancycenter.gmail.com and I'd be happy to answer any follow-up questions that anybody has today. Yeah, thank you. That that was so thorough and so professional, It's uh, which I think is totally appropriate for talking about something as intense about abortion. Um, and also just for listeners who are thinking um, I don't remember that email. We will, or how to spell it. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well so that you've got that um, to easily contact Ashley about any statistics mentioned as well. Or if you just want to reach out to her, um, obviously you've heard that she's she's knows what she's doing. Um, so before I go any further, I did just want to acknowledge, and I, I think in one sense, it almost goes without saying because it is so intense. But in another sense, it's it's helpful to just name what the the intensity around abortion. Um, if if you've listened to Beggar's Bread in the past, you've heard Nick and I talk about wedge issues, and abortion is perhaps the most intense wedge issue. It's it's very difficult to talk about with nuance, and that's that's actually why we named the episode nuance ground zero there's a sense of it's very like you are for one thing you're either pro-life or you're pro-choice and that often is the end of a conversation so our our goal is not to um not to shame anyone who's had an abortion we're not trying to make this into a very simplistic conversation but we're trying to enter into a, a pretty difficult conversation <laughs> Um, and to kind of give us a roadmap, and honestly, I think a lot of this episode, Nick and Ashley and I were talking beforehand, and Nick was like, I think a lot of this episode I'll be listening to Ashley, and I thought, I'm like, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> that would be good for all of us. Um, but broadly speaking, and honestly, Ashley, you've already touched on this, several of these things just going over the intro, but... Uh, we're going to be talking about something philosophical, um, something political, and something practical. So if you're kind of thinking, uh, okay, this is a big topic, how are, how are you guys going to approach this? We're going to start with something philosophical. And it's to just say, as surprising as it may sound coming from a Christian podcast, um, I can understand why, why people may not believe a developing baby might not be considered a person. I, I just want to acknowledge it. It is my belief and our conviction here that at a life would start at conception. And that is a faith commitment based on specific Bible verses like Psalm 139, 13, for example. And in a way, the definition of life has already been 
decided for Christians. It's, and in some senses, um, that sometimes can stop the conversation before I, I keep going even, um, Ashley, there was something you were mentioning before we started recording about specifically churches and how they talk about um, abortion in kind of a very simplistic way. Would you mind, I know I might be taking you off of specific notes, but would you mind going into that just for a little bit too? Yeah, of course. So obviously the Bible is filled with numerous Bible verses that show intention from God's plan before we were made. There's several Bible verses talking about before you were born, I've had this plan for you, I formed you. So there's definitely a lot of biblical evidence um, that God knows our personhood even before, um, to be graphic, the sperm meets the egg, that God already has that vision and that we are worthy even before that. And I think the church has done a mixed way of doing that. I think that a lot of churches have leaned on those Bible verses really well and have shown us a really beautiful image of childbearing and pregnancy. But on the other side, I think there's also a lot of shame built into a lot of the ways that we talk about abortion because we've so frequently used these Bible verses almost as a weapon against other women. And we have made them, shown them like, how could you miss this? It's so obvious that this is a life. And kind of like what you were saying, it for some people, it isn't that clear cut. And um, as churches, we need to be a welcoming place that can educate people about God's um, worthiness and high view of life from the point of conception um, in a way that doesn't shame them for any pain in their past or any decisions that they're currently uh, wrestling with. One of the best ways that I like to think about the personhood and the developing fetus and embryo is, um, like I mentioned, I'm a mother and I have two children. And the thing from a medical perspective is that once that sperm and egg combine, you already have the chromosomes. The DNA is already there. Everything that happens past that point, the multiplication of the cells, everything like that is just biology. And it's a, a point in spectrum on the development time frame. So just like how there's infants, toddlers, school-aged children, etc., pregnancy, prenatal terminology, natalology, as we call it in the medical community, is just a series of development. Um, there is no point um, that my daughter, from the time that she was conceived at conception, there was no point in time when she stopped being my daughter. Her, if I would have miscarried her early, if she wouldn't have made it to the age that she is, her personhood and her unique being was still there no matter what. It's just a different point in her development time frame. Um, there's a lot of other ways that people do define the beginning of life. You can talk about um, brain activity. We've been able to detect brain waves in uh, babies in the first two months of life, which is very early. Um, a lot of people define it as the start of heartbeats. And as someone that performs ultrasounds very routinely, I will tell you that pretty much almost every ultrasound that we perform, the heartbeat is already present because the heartbeat usually starts to beat around five to six weeks. And most women don't realize they're pregnant until the five to six week mark. So pretty much every time that you are in a doctor's office, in a pregnancy center, and they're already doing a pregnancy test and ultrasound, you most likely already have a heartbeat and brain activity. And again, that heartbeat and brain activity is gonna continue on for that person. Um, so there's a, a bunch of different ways that you can define that. Um, I know that we also, one of the things that I teach a lot of people is sanctity of human life versus quality of human life. And in Sanctity of Human Life, we believe that our value is absolute and that we were created 
and it's based upon who we are and who knows us, which is God. Whereas quality of human life is very relative. It's based on man's evolution. It's based on what we do. It's based on um, how we are known by. And it's based on man's definition, whereas sanctity of human life is based upon fact and uh, based on how God defines personhood. Yeah, that's the way you just finished that just now, The like who you're known by. And that's really the, the notes that I just was about to kind of elaborate on and um, I think this might be, I don't know, transitioning out of philosophical to political. There was just one other thing when you said like man's way of defining things, humanity's way. It was interesting that I heard this, um, it was actually a, a testimony and obviously not all high risk pregnancies, um, go well, but in this case, it was a woman telling a story of her child being born successfully in a, a very, um, intense high-risk pregnancy before um, birth her doctors told her that if your daughter is born um, that she'll have a zero percent chance of a meaningful life and uh, that word meaningful really stuck out to me actually once I took a philosophy class called death and the meaning of life but that that's a little bit off topic but it's really interesting how they're defining meaningful because obviously as as Christians you just mentioned and I don't want to belabor this point too much, but our sense of meaning comes from being defined by by God's making us and being in his creation and being sustained by him. But outside of Christianity, that question is really difficult to answer. Um, obviously, some other faith traditions have other ways of answering it, but um, if you take like a purely materialist or more secularist way of viewing the world, it's just very unclear. And I think if I can, again, knowing this is very sensitive and intense, but if I can respectfully talk to those who are listening right now who may not be Christians or may not belong to a faith tradition, that I think that would be probably my, my biggest thing I would be trying to persuade you is where, where does life's meaning come from? Does it, does it come from ability or age? Like obviously talking about development, as you mentioned earlier, and and also if you're going to be kind of intellectually consistent, I think the thing that brings me comfort about the Christian tradition is there's a place for everyone. You know, if, if someone is born with down syndrome or on the spectrum of autism, they have meaning, their life is meaningful regardless of their ability or how much money they can make or, you know, whatever. But I, I digress cause that I could, <laughs> we could get a little long winded. Um, Nick, I know, I know you're aiming to listen, and I'm right there with you. But did you have anything to add on something philosophical before we move to something political? Not so far, anyways. Um, but yeah, like we said earlier in our discussion prior to recording, I think oftentimes we find ourselves, you know, shouting across the aisles, like we've talked about before on this podcast, and so. I think this will be my my own personal opportunity to kind of like reflect on what somebody who has a little bit more expertise has to say. And then also referencing back to, you know, the very insightful video that we'll be referencing later on in this episode. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you said that. That's a great segue because moving on to something political um, or actually, was there anything else? you wanted to uh, expound on with something philosophical before we move on? 
No, no, I think we've pretty much covered it. I would like to add if there is anybody that is wrestling with maybe a high-risk pregnancy that they've been told maybe there is a chance of them having a certain disability or even if they have a confirmed disability, just know that there are so many people out there that are applauding your bravery. There are many great organizations that can help with um, even some of like the terminal illnesses. If you already know your baby is going to be born stillborn, there's some really great resources out there. Um, so definitely give me an email if that's something that you've struggled with. I know that's a really hard journey to walk with. Um, even for people that don't believe in God, I've seen them wrestle with some really deep pain and sorrow of knowing that their baby does have intrinsic value but that they will have issues being born and i've seen that actually face to face and it it's not an easy thing and just know that there is a community of people that um are willing to love and support you and pray for you and that there's a lot of people that know that that is one of the hardest choices to make and that is a very brave option to take thank you thank you for saying that i and i again i'm very grateful that you are gonna include your email because i think just as nick just said i'll add myself to that list of this is a little bit deeper than we know so i'm, I'm really grateful but, but yeah let me uh excellent let me uh, move on to something political where the video we are recommending this week is from sky jathani so again uh the holy post if you have listened to our podcast you know we are nick and i are big fans and actually I know just from hanging out with Ashley uh, when we met in Hawaii with our mutual friend that she also likes the Holy Post. So it was like, this is great. Let's recommend this video. And the video is called, What About Abortion? Should this one issue determine how Christians vote? So this is um, was released last year, 2020, before the election of the presidential election. And obviously, as you may imagine, if you haven't heard of this video, it, it caused uh, a bit of a stir. Um, and I've been approached by several people that I obviously really care about. And they've asked me, because in the past we have definitely dug into criticizing uh, Donald Trump. Like we, Nick and I have openly criticized Donald Trump. And not to get too sidetracked, but... They've asked, well, would you be willing to, like, call out Joe Biden? And I thought, in a way, yes, uh, um, I would absolutely want to be consistent. If there's something that Joe Biden is doing that I think is wrong, I, I would definitely want to mention something. And I would be transparent. This is one of those moments that um, Joe Biden's approach to talking about abortion often will separate his faith tradition from his governance. So he definitely claims to be Catholic. Um, during his inauguration, he said many centuries ago, St. Augustine, the saint of my church. So not that I'm really going to that quote very deep, but uh, definitely owning St. Augustine. Um, uh, if we were talking about something less serious than life or death, I think I would understand like the sense of, I, I, I understand where Joe Biden's coming from. Like, I want to separate my faith conviction with my policy position if we were talking about something like prayer in school where we live in a pluralistic society you know i might understand that a little bit better might appreciate that but when we are talking about life or death and if it if he's truly of the conviction as um, our brothers and sisters in the catholic church that this is a human life 
I don't think that's an appropriate decision to kind of say, well, I'll just, we live in a pluralistic society, so I'll let other people go with what they want. Because if you're acknowledging that that is in fact a person, you need to acknowledge the importance of protecting them. But anyway, moving on to talking about our video, um, let's uh, let's start, if you want. Ashley, what what do you think of this video? Um, I don't know. I'm guessing you've seen it a couple times. I have actually seen it a couple times, and it's one of the videos now that I actually encourage my volunteers to watch, and we show a clip of it in our volunteer training. I am a huge, huge fan of Sky's work. I've read several of his books. Like you mentioned, I listen to the Holy Post podcast. I think Sky is a very refreshing voice in our current evangelical church uh, climate. He is just so vision forward and I love a lot of what he has to say and this video was no exception um, for those of us that were raised in the church. I think that there is a very tunnel vision approach to uh, politics and that it is every politician can be boiled down to a yes or no and that is do they support abortion or do they not. And I do believe in our polarization of our society that is becoming more and more true. However, as Sky covers in this video, um, abortion and politics and funding etc is a very complex issue and there's a lot of uh, different sides to it. It's not uh, so simple as just if I have a pro-life president in office then there won't be as many abortions and if I have a pro-abortion president in office there'll be abortions left and right. Um, the most important piece of Sky's video that I think is that he highlights that people think, well, I vote for pro-life politicians every two to four years, so I'm pro-life, I'm standing for life, and you know maybe I write my senator every so often, and that's kind of the end of their pro-life advocacy. Um, and we should absolutely want those in office to support our pro-life movement, but from personal experience, I can tell you that the average person who's walking into a Planned Parenthood or their OB office to have an abortion is not considering national politics or national funding while making that decision. Um, and like Sky mentioned, due to lots of different factors, the abortion rate has actually been steadily declining since Roe v. Wade, regardless of who is in office, which shows that there, there's obviously a lot of other different correlating factors. And abortion statistics are actually a couple years behind on their reporting. And the first year of Donald Trump's presidency actually we don't have the official numbers, but it might have actually been the first year that abortions did not go down, which is a very interesting thing to wrestle with as the final statistics do come out for sure. I think what it boils down to is we can either find our pride in that we have the right person in office on the issue, or we could actually work more on reaching out to others and figuring out why they're making those decisions. Because most women are not having an abortion because Planned Parenthood is getting the funding for that abortion, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, yeah, let me try saying it back to see if I am understand. And I mean, I've watched the video a couple times, but basically, you're saying when someone comes to you when with your pregnancy care center, really the, the crisis that they're facing is not very connected with these um, kind of larger policy movements often. They're more facing, what do I do right now? And regardless if Planned Parenthood has more money or not, they're trying to figure out their own individual um, situation, which I... I definitely appreciate again you're on the ground I'm I'm not but I could see where someone might say well 
if someone is in a crisis, and if Planned Parenthood simply didn't exist, if there was just a pregnancy care center, then they they might go to someone um, like yourself who might be able to take better care of them. So I can I can definitely understand why someone would be uh, concerned about the funding, but I'm glad you mentioned that too. So then it, with Sky's key question, he says, is overturning Roe versus Wade the key to reducing abortion in America? He really seems to answer it as no. Um, although, I mean, and he's also quoting uh, or using David French as kind of an interlocutor, um, or maybe that's not the right word, but like as a source. Um, and then he, he just definitely says at about 10 minutes in the, in the video, he says, the person sitting in the Oval Office is not what matters most when it comes to reducing abortions. Maybe this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but uh, I think because you mentioned advocacy, this is a great time to ask, what, uh, what can Christians do, Ashley, if someone's thinking, well, okay, I appreciate what Ashley just said, it's not about how I vote every two years or four years or writing my senator every once in a while, but then what would be a good way to advocate if, if you're a Christian and you, you want to help people, you want to help reduce abortion? Well, you are getting a little bit ahead of my notes, so I'm actually going to okay. talk a little bit about <laughs> Roe v. Wade and some other legal decisions first. Oh, that's good. Just that's so great. We can, yeah, just so we can be a little bit more educated about kind of how we got <laughs> to the point that we did. Um, that's good. And even going back to the summary in which you did, which is absolutely correct, you kind of rephrased what I said, and you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I really like to kind of play devil's advocate a lot of times is we have had several Republican pro-life presidents over the last couple of years, and the pregnancy help centers have been around since the 1960s, 1970s. So my question when we when I have people that push back and say, well, we need a pro-life president, my question is always, well, how many of those pro-life presidents have given federal funding to pregnancy centers? How many of them have showcased pregnancy center work? How much of them have, like you were saying, tried to minimize Planned Parenthood's effect on the average woman and have amplified our center? And even with some of the most pro-life presidents and senators and representatives, that is not the case. Um, so I think that's just another little something to think about. Um, so back to Sky's question in the video when he says, is overturning Roe v. Wade the key to re uh, reducing abortion in America? If, hypothetically, Roe v. Wade were to be reversed, um, abortion law would, instead of being federally regulated, it would go back to the states, which was the way it was um, before Roe v. Wade. Um, so many states in the South, most likely, um, would have more stricter laws, like things like heartbeat bills, those types of things. And then there would be states such as New York, California, and Hawaii, which would be much more liberal and would probably have no restrictions as they basically do right now. Um, the problem with that um, hypothetical situation, um, like his video mentions, is that there was actually several bills and lawsuits that came before the Supreme Court within the perfect time frame that would have reversed Roe v. Wade. At one point, all of the judges were conservatives, except for one Democrat, and that one Democrat actually voted against Roe v. Wade in the original decision. So if there was ever a point in time that Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, I believe it would have been with that court. That's not to say it's never going to happen. I just think that it's kind of a fool's errand that we sometimes give people because we had a perfect window there. Um, as more time passes, abortion is just going to be seen more and more as a cultural right. Um, so there's really, at least for many in the pro-life community, including myself, there's kind of a strong sense of we're not going back to that. 
how it was before. And we kind of had our chance if it was going to be reversed. Some important things to remember about Roe v. Wade, it was based on one woman's um, case. Um, she claimed that she had been raped and that she had been refused an abortion. Um, during the trial, there was not expert testimony. There was not medical testimony. As you can imagine, we have come a long way in prenatal technology and prenatal diagnoses since that original case, and we have a lot more information about prenatal development. Um, so it's kind of sad that such a strong medical case has withstood the test of time, even though there's been a lot of new information that have um, come out since then. Um, and actually, when we talk about this, Roe v. Wade isn't actually the case that we should want to be overturned. Um, what Roe v. Wade did was it found um, within the law that it was unconstitutional um, to uh, refuse an abortion due to the right to privacy under the process clause of the 14th Amendment, which actually overruled laws in 40 states about abortion. So basically what Roe v. Wade did was it said that um, the right to privacy protects the right to determine the outcome of your pregnancy. It denies personhood within the meaning of the Constitution because it removed a murder clause. And it stated that um, states can regulate outside of viability. So Roe v. Wade set forth the trimester approach, which was an attempt to balance a woman's right to abortion and the state's right to protect her life. In the first trimester, um, the decision was between the woman and her doctor, and the state could not put, uh, impose any restrictions in the first trimester. So. Um, I know neither of you have had children, so that's roughly about the first three months of pregnancy. Um, <laughs> in the second trimester, um, the state could enact laws reasonably related to maternal health, such as where abortions could be performed and who could perform them. Um, and then in the third trimester, state laws could forbid abortion after viability um, unless a doctor determined that the abortion was necessary to preserve the life and health of the mother. So based on what Roe v. Wade established, we actually would have some pretty strong anti-abortion laws in our country. It basically would only give free reign for that first trimester. Um, have either of you guys ever heard of the Supreme Court case Doe versus Bolton? I have not. <laughs> so I Doe versus I have. Yeah, so Doe versus Bolton is actually the case. If we were to overturn any case, it would be Doe versus Bolton because it was a companion case that was voted on in the Supreme Court in the same day, which built on Roe v. Wade to define health the health of the mother in that last trimester as anything physical, emotional, psychological, familiar, or age-related. So it basically gave any woman the right to have an abortion at any stage in the process for any reason that she could classify as health. In most cases, we would define health as, you know, risking risk of life and death. But with this one, um, broadening the definition to meaning emotional and psychological, it basically enabled women to have any abortion for any reason. Um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 um, uh, replaced a lot of Roe with an undue burden test, which basically just means um, you weren't supposed to pass any laws if the purpose was to place substantial obstacles in the place of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. And this case was really important because this allowed for passages of over 300 pro-life laws since then, such as parental consent in some states, informed consent, waiting periods, heartbeat bills, etc. So you hear about these a lot of times, even in the news today, that various states um, will pass those laws in the kind of that first early window, um, which before that case in 92, we didn't have that right at all. Um, oh, I see. And then Gonzalez versus Carhartt in 2007 um, gave the pro-life movement a victory when it upheld the federal ban on partial birth abortion, 
But it did something really important in that case because Justice Anthony Kennedy expressed that women have come to rely on abortion as an alternative to failed contraception, which is a legal principle, which is called the reliance interest, which is actually a legal doctrine in the Supreme Court. So it basically has prohibited the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, and that will stand for until the end of time because women have come to rely on abortion to maintain their place in society. So with all of those fundamental cases there, we would have to virtually overturn all of them. And because of Gonzalez versus Carhartt in 2007, we basically will not be able to overturn Roe v. Wade based on reliance interest. Wow, that was that was very thorough. Thank you for that. Um, amazing. Nick, did you have any thoughts you want to share in the video as well? <laughs> No, I just think that what you just said, Ashley, kind of expounds upon kind of a very brief, you know, because the video that we're referencing is like, what, 15 minutes long? So providing this additional information definitely sets like the framework for people, especially people that might have had that preconception that, you know, Roe v. Wade, like that's it. Like that's the the route that we need to take as voters or or more particularly as Christians. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. I know the legalese is kind of boring, but it, you hear that mantra a lot, overturn Roe v. Wade, and sadly, it's not as simple as that. And like I said earlier, sadly, I think we kind of had the perfect storm if that were to happen. I believe it was in the mid-90s, I think, when the court was all conservatives and the only Democrat had actually voted against Roe v. Wade in its original uh, inception in 1970. So I felt like that was kind of our perfect window, and it did not happen. So. I think it's a tagline that a lot of people like to throw out and hey i would love if it would happen don't get me wrong i think that would be great <laughs> but i don't think that that should be the end all be all of our pro-life advocacy right absolutely well and i think even though i know you mentioned like the legalese can be kind of boring it is uh you know it it's it's clear that you've done your research um it's clear that you know what's going on um and it certainly does bring a lot of light to the attention that with this being used as something that, and I think Sky covers this in his video as well, this is an issue that's used to energize voters. So a lot of times it's presented so simplistically because that is what energizes the base. You know, either side, either the Republicans saying we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade or the Democrats saying we have to stop uh, Roe v. Wade from being overturned. So it definitely gets to more of the, the complicated nature of it. Um, any, if you guys are cool, that I would like to bring in our, our co-listener. Uh, this is Anna from Wisconsin. And thank you so much, Anna, for writing this co-listening. It, it's it's one of our longer ones, which I think, again, is appropriate, given that we're talking about a, an intense topic. Uh, Anna says... While I do believe that the video does a good job presenting their point in a non-confrontational manner, I do see the proverb, man may seem right in his own eyes until another man comes along and examines his way, is at play here. Sky Jathani used stats regarding abortion numbers decreasing while disregarding that several states, including California, which is very pro-choice and the most populous state, does not report abortion statistics. This makes it very difficult to say with confidence that abortion numbers are decreasing and or what policies are contributing to that without all the facts. All in all, I feel that this video leads you to neglect the other avenues that pro-life beliefs would be 
would be neglected by a pro-choice appointee on any level, but especially presidential. Biden reversing his stance on the Hyde Amendment, uh, stimulus money being given to Planned Parenthood, even if it's not for abortions, it, it frees otherwise earmarked money up for abortions, Equality Act impacting doctors' conscience choice to object to procedures they disagree with, Obama appointed judge approving removal of FDA rules on abortion pills being used without oversight from a health professional, uh, Biden desiring to codify abortions on a federal level being yoked to Vice President Kamala Harris, who has a 100% approval rating from pro-choice advocates and as district attorney in California went after pro-life groups in the courtroom, increasing use of executive orders to fund things like oversee abortions and appointing Xavier Becerra as Sec Secretary of Health and Human Services, who continued the prosecution of pro-life journalists for exposing Planned Parenthood's harvesting of organs are just among the few impacts of voting for pro-choice presidents that has little to do with Roe v. Wade. And then she concludes, I agree that we need to take a closer look at our communities and do things like support our local pregnancy centers. This is a very in-depth discussion and deserves many conversations. So I appreciate this being opened up to be talked about more about. Uh, so that is the, uh, Anna's co-listening quote. Thank you again, Anna, for uh, uh, giving us your thoughts. Um, Ashley and Nick, uh, tell me... Uh, what do you think? I know, again, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to reflect on both in the video and now with Anna's co-listening. Um, what do you think about Anna's thoughts, Ashley? Um, well, thank you so much, Anna. I think that you bring up lots of several great points there. I can tell that you have done your research and you are very well formed. Um, you are absolutely right that there is a lot of scary stuff that has happened in California in the pro-life movement, um, and we have had to fight a couple legal battles over there. So I definitely don't uh, disagree with anything that she brings up. Um, definitely there's policy choices and other things that are being made that can make abortion more accessible to women. I know that uh, my state just this past week passed a bill that now allows um, non-MDs to prescribe the abortion pill and uh, perform abortions in the first trimester. So that would include uh, physicians, assistants, and advanced practice uh, RNs. And that is probably a bill that would not have been um, passed if not for the further push from the FDA and the loosening of regulations on the abortion pill. Um, but again, like I talked about earlier, I think we just kind of have to reframe our, our state of mind when we think about these issues and that are these policies all, I hate to use the word forcing, but are they encouraging women when they make that choice to have more abortions um, or are they simply more policies that just kind of change our culture? I know that David French talks a lot about the importance of standing up for the culture and the waves that culture is headed because policy always follows the cultural cultural discourse. And I think that the pro-life movement for a really long time used such harsh rhetoric that we lost a lot of that um, energy to kind of push back against some of these things. And I think that that still continues um, to this day. Um, one fun story I do want to add um, is that um, as she was talking about um, Xavier as the new Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, he, uh, him and his team in the state of California um, passed a law which required all pregnancy centers to have a sign with 22-point font in their waiting rooms. Um, 
with all of the different primary languages that told all patients that they have the right excuse me, to a state-funded abortion with a telephone number that they could then call um, for that abortion. And pregnancy centers were also required to have a sign in 48-point font in all primary languages spoken um, that disclosed that they did not have a medical professional um, on the premises, which was also false. Um, the uh, NIFLA, which is the legal representation for pregnancy centers, um, filed a lawsuit on behalf of the pregnancy centers in California. Um, and took the case all the way to the Supreme Court, um, stating that the law clearly and unconstitutionally compels speech that these organizations fundamentally disagree with and thus violates our consciousness. Um, this law would have, uh, failure to comply with the law would have meant that the government would be able to issue massive fines and penalties, which would then in essence close down pregnancy centers in the state of California. And actually while this uh, battle was going on, we also faced a virtually identical lawsuit here in the state of Hawaii that would have imposed the same, it did impose the same restrictions, but we took it to the courts and it was on pause while this court case went to the Supreme Court and um, thanks to God's favor and the facts on our side, um, they did rule in favor of the pregnancy center movement. So that just goes to show that even when you have these pro-choice people in power, that there can still be victories on our side. And that's why I believe that no matter which administration is in power, there were issues under Trump's administration too that the pregnancy center movement and the pro-life movement has just been staying up to date on all the different changing tides and we then change our methods to better um, help women. Um, with this new push for abortion pill, you see lots of centers um, offering abortion pill reversal, which is a way that can, um, once a woman has taken the first dose of the pill but hasn't taken the second dose yet, we can actually, there's a hope that they may be able to stop that abortion. So you see our pro-life movement constantly listening to what's happening on the political and the social level, and then rechanging our efforts based on that. Um, and that's why being educated, um, like Anna obviously is, is so important, is because we can stay up to date on those things. Um, but again, at the end of the day, do all of those policies cause more abortions to happen? If you look at the statistics reported, um, then that is not always the case. And I will push back on one thing. She said that um, California does not report um, abortion statistics. There are a few states in the U.S. that are not required to report abortion statistics, but many of them still do. Um, it's just that each state has different um, qualifiers for when you do and do not have to report. So, for instance, if you take Medicare funding in many states, you have to report every abortion. Um, but thank you so much for your feedback. That was a great comment. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, Nick, do you have any thoughts you wanted to add as well? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, there is one thing I want to mention just as you're responding, Ashley, and you mentioned, uh, I, I won't belabor this point too much, um, but talking about the term pro-life, because we've used it quite a bit, uh, which obviously makes sense. It's a, it's a paradigm for viewing abortion and also for viewing a lot of issues it is interesting because thinking about talking about abortion and i'm i'm glad even that you acknowledged well really david french i love david french and the dispatch uh, that whole I do group, too. but <laughs> they're yeah they're really they're, honestly they are my my favorite media outlet right now and uh excited whenever i read that but um it's interesting acknowledging the harshness that sometimes has been used in the past by the pro-life movement. It's, and I think maybe the best way I can explain my, my hesitation in talking about abortion 
on the podcast might be in a way that I think a lot of conservatives view uh, Black Lives Matter. And I know this this may seem off topic, but let me try and uh, let me try and relate it. When people talk about Black Lives Matter as an organization, there's obviously a, a lot of things in their um, on their website and their platform that doesn't really have to do with race, or at least there's kind of added things that don't have to do with the phrase Black Lives Matter. So for that reason, you know, myself and many people uh, that are more conservative, that are my friends or that I know, will say, I, I want to say the phrase, but I, I don't want to be associated with that group. I don't, I don't support everything. Um, and I felt very similar about using the term pro-life in the past, and, and even currently sometimes it's like, oh, I, I do want to be for women and for the unborn, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to sign up for the entire Republican platform. So I do want to just acknowledge that if you are listening right now, and regardless of where you sit, if you have heard that term in the past be used, um, and you look at people and you say, they're not really pro-life with the way, way they view you know, refugees or immigration or whatever, I do want to let you know, like, I acknowledge that there are there are many people that claim to be pro-life and don't really have a consistent pro-life ethic for for the way they approach life. But also, if it's an encouragement, um, especially for my friends who may be more progressive or maybe pro-choice, as someone who grew up and and still swims in the waters of more conservative area, there are a lot of people that that I know that really do care about people's lives beyond just abortion. Um, and I don't know, I, I know that may sound odd for me saying that, but I, I just wanted to briefly touch on that, <laughs> not to open too many can of worms, but no, I think that's an important point. I think that, um, as we've already discussed numerous times, and I actually have a little bit more to talk about that here, um, more towards the end is that there is a long history on both sides and there is definitely, um, I think like Nick was saying, a kind of a shouting across the aisle and using more derogatory and harsh language. And so I think there is a lot of people that hear the term pro-life and they kind of bristle or don't always want to um, completely jump on board with that. And um, and I've been using pro-life in this discussion just because I feel like it's the most accessible. But in our center, we use several other terms. We use um, life-affirming. We use pro-love, we use um, pro-life from womb to grave. You know, we, we use a lot of different terminology, um, again, to kind of break that mold. Um, there's a common phrase in the movement also called, lo- uh, that is love them both. And so you see a lot of t-shirts or books or slogans with that in that we're here to not just love the baby, but love the mother also. And so I think that's a great, a great point that you bring up in that if there is some baggage um, tied with that term um, as a as this new kind of generation of um, people like me and people in these pregnancy centers are coming up, I think we definitely do want to rebrand ourselves and kind of bring up a bigger picture. I know Karenet also uh, uses the phrase pro-abundant life a lot too, which is um, they do really important work with Uh, making sure that the family is healthy and whole even after the baby is born. It's not just about saving the baby and moving on, but making sure that the parents also are living their best life, which then has the best outcomes for the baby too. Yeah, I love that phrase, love them both. That's, that's, that hit me when you said that. Um, 
Well, before we move on to something practical, uh, do either of you, Ashley or Nick, do you guys have any um, last thoughts about something political before we move on to uh, just thinking about practical things? I have a lot under something practical, so I will digress under something political. (laughs) Okay, that sounds good. Nick, anything from you? No, I'm just excited to hear more about the practical aspects because I think oftentimes like even the video described, right? Like we'll hear about, you know, we'll vote maybe once every two years or once every four years, but claim the name of like, like we value life, but then we don't act like that with the boots on the ground and like practical ways in which like specifically the church can be involved in their community and spreading like life and truth. That's good. That That's great. Well, I, I think that's a great segue to something practical. So let's start off with this quote from Sky's video. He says, even more importantly, and he's referring to a Notre Dame study, he says, the Notre Dame study found that most women, including most pro-choice women, do not want an abortion. Um, Have you found this to be true, Ashley, in your interactions? Absolutely. Um, I, before I got involved in the pro-life movement, I had a lot of um, thinking about oh, women um, don't understand what they're doing. These women are comfortable with murder and they have no regard for life. And I can attest that um, day in and day out that that is not uh, the case with any client that I've ever had that has chosen an abortion. I, no woman that I have ever worked with has just taken it as a light matter, has brushed it off as nothing. All of them that I have ever met, um, which I have met many, um, struggle and wrestle with it. And um, I'm going to read some some content here um, from two articles that are very important to our pregnancy center and many pregnancy centers. Um, and it kind of, as we're talking about how the pro-life movement has kind of changed over time, these articles are actually from the late 90s, um, but they really, especially recently, have really turned the tides in how we Um, deal and see these women that come into our centers. Um, So the the title of these two articles um, is uh, Abortion, um, The Least of Three Evils is one of them, and then the other one is Abortion, A Failure to Communicate. Um, So if you guys wouldn't mind, I'm going to read a little bit from those two articles. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. So these are direct quotes. These are not, um, everything else today has been kind of my paraphrasing of everything. Um, This is actually quotes from uh, from the articles and the the research that they did is they surveyed basically their bottom line was why do women have abortions now that we know it's you know it's it's not as taboo anymore and again this was in the late 90s um, 1998 I believe was one of them um, why do women have an abortion is it because they don't care is it because they're not educated what is the bottom line and so the people that they surveyed in this were not just pro-life people. These were all women that were having abortions, um, including women that probably were fine with having an abortion, but it was to kind of understand their underlying um, motivation for why they made the decision that they did, if that kind of makes sense. Absolutely. Um, uh, So the studies say, um, the reason why women choose abortion is an identity problem. Many young women of today have developed a self-identity that simply does not include being a mother or a mother at this time. It may include going through college, getting a degree, obtaining a good job, maybe getting married someday. But the sudden intrusion of motherhood is perceived as a complete loss of control over their present and future selves. 
When a woman faces an unplanned pregnancy, her main question is not, is this a baby? With the assumed consequence that if she knows it to be so, she will always choose life. Women know, though not often at the subconscious level, that the fetus is human and that it will be killed by abortion. But that is the price a woman in this situation is willing to pay in her desperate struggle for what she believes to be her very survival. Emphasis on babies, whether dismembered fetuses or happy newborns, will tend to deepen the woman's sense of denial, isolation, and despair, which are the very emotions that lead her to choose an abortion in the first place. Her central, perhaps subconscious, question is rather, how can I preserve my own life? The pro-life movement was, must address her side of the equation and do so in a compassionate manner that affirms her own inner convictions and struggles. Without stigmatizing or condemning, pro-lifers must help a woman to reevaluate what she perceives as the three evils before her. The terrible miscalculation of young women is that abortion can make them unpregnant, that it will restore them to who they were before the crisis, but a woman is never the same once she is pregnant, whether the child is kept, adopted, or killed. Abortion may be a kind of resolution, but it is not the one that women most deeply long for, nor will it even preserve her sense of identity. Um, Sidebarring off of that, that is something that we, um, as life-affirming, as a life-affirming pregnancy center, we do tell women that is that even if they do ultimately choose abortion, which unfortunately some women still do, is we always tell them, especially when we help them memorialize the infant, that they are a mother no matter what, and that they were the mother of that child, and that an abortion does not undo that, and it does not take that child from their personhood as a mother. Um, back to the article. Even those women who are more likely to choose life rather than abortion do not do so because they better understand fetiology or have a greater love for children, but because they have a broader and less fragile sense of self, and they can better incorporate motherhood into their self-identity. Adoption, unfortunately, is seen as the most evil of the three options, as it is perceived as a kind of double death. First, the death of self, as the woman would have to accept motherhood by carrying the baby to term. Further, not only would the woman be a mother, but she would perceive herself as a bad mother, one who gave her own baby away to strangers. The second death of, of, would be the death of the child through abandonment. In fact, while abortion itself is seen as something evil, the woman has to make that choice. The woman who has to make that choice is perceived as being courageous because she believes she has made a difficult, costly, but necessary decision in order to get on with her life. Basically, abortion is considered the least of three evils because it is perceived as offering the greatest hope for a woman to preserve her own sense of self, her own life. This is why women feel protective towards the abortion woman and her right to choose and can be deeply resentful toward the pro-life movement, which they perceive as uncaring and judgmental. Such a radical, radical change in who they believe themselves to be is the emotional equivalent of a death to them. Indeed, to the right brain, it, it is perceived as the death of the familiar self. So strong is the fear of death um, that abortion is seen by these women as a means of self-preservation. Even though these women believe abortion is wrong, that it is evil, they recognize it as something that will prevent the death of self, which to them is an even greater evil. So the decision to abort is not a direct decision, but rather is arrived at almost by a default as an act of self-preservation. When a woman chooses to keep her child, her spiritual conflict has ended with her acceptance of an expanded or changed definition of who she is and who she will become. Women who have an unplanned pregnancy only want to become unpregnant, to return to who and what they were before becoming pregnant. This perception of regaining control makes the decision to abort compelling to so many. Um, and so when I teach this article in our volunteer training, I really want to um, acknowledge to our volunteers and then to your listening audience today as well, that the pro-life ministry is about the Lord's doing because it has to be Jesus redeeming women's identities and self-worth. Our task as pro-life volunteers or in the movement is to identify these women's fears and speak to their new identities. 
Um, this insight in psychology also shows us as pro-life advocates that we cannot change anybody's mind. Only God can change their minds about abortion, and all we can do um, is love them. Um, I think that men especially play a really crucial role in this because a lot of the um, expansion of her um, self-identity um, can be better um, facilitated by having a supportive man who can help her see the flaws in her thinking there and can help acknowledge the deaths that she's experiencing and help her to find new lives in kind of those cracks of this kind of unexpected um, pregnancy. Um, I know in your original question, Luke, you said um, uh, most women do not want to have an abortion and I think that is absolutely true um, and um, I think it's in your notes, but you talk about why do women, why do they choose? Um, so 74% yeah. um, said that um, the baby would interfere with school, employment, or ability to care for dependents. And 73% uh, say cannot afford a baby right now. 48% um, will say that they don't want to become a single parent or they have relationship problems. And 32% will say that they're not ready to have another child. So you can see all of those reasons really reflected in the psychology of that article that I just read because it's yeah. showing... Um, the, the internal struggles of how am I going to figure this out? How am I going to do that? And like I said, that broadening of that self-identity and what we, what we try to do is we try to bring that love that is in that heart that is trying to be crushed by the brain and all the worries and fears. We try to bring that love instead to the surface and help them see that this is not a child worth sacrificing, but a child worth sacrificing for. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's striking to me uh, just, I mean, coming from a place of largely a lot of ignorance about this topic, how much of it has to do with, like, the way you talked about identity. Um, I suppose I, I just would not have thought about that. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I would have thought about, but um, I don't think I, I don't think that would have occurred to me. Um do you mind speaking a little bit more to, I know you mentioned that, um, um, a male, a man support can be really important. Is there something like, let's just say, I, not that we are totally helpless, but if you could make it as simple as possible, if you're talking to, let's say you're talking to a man that's saying, yeah, my, my girlfriend or my significant other, or my wife is thinking about getting an abortion, and what what do I do? Um, you know, what is a way that I think if I heard correctly, you were saying speaking words of truth, but maybe there's more to it that I was missing as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I get really fired up about the fatherhood side of this. So I'll try to try to keep my energy down because I don't want to give you guys a five hour podcast to send out to your listeners. Um, but <laughs> I really think, you know, we spend a lot of time focusing on the politics and the Roe v. Wade. And again, I want to flip it back more on a cultural perspective and say that I think one of, um, excuse again, my kind of harsh language here, but I think one of Satan's biggest um, attacks in this field is that he has the narrative in the culture has basically been men step aside. Men, you don't get a, a voice in this. Men, you know, you don't have a uterus. You don't have to carry the baby. You're not important in this. And um, men are designed to protect and men are designed to sacrifice for others. And I think that um, when a, your girlfriend or your wife or your fiance or whoever gets pregnant, um, 
a lot of men have that hero aspect and I think that men and fathers are made to lay their life down for their child and if you are with someone that is contemplating um, to have an abortion I think one of the things that men have to face head-on is that that reverse will happen to you is that your child will be sacrificed for you and that is a really deep and hard thing I think for men more so than women to wrestle with because they have that protector instinct. Um, obviously I cannot speak for you and Nick but I think that there's just that built-in um, desire to want to protect and nourish um, even from a young age. And so for somebody that um, is in that um, position, um, constantly what I see is the, the significant other, the boyfriend, just kind of sitting there on the couch looking at me going, well, whatever she wants to do, I support her in whatever she wants to do. And that is what they've been told by society is the empowering thing. But by, by telling women that there's really only one option to get out of this with the most of you intact, by saying that that requires you to have an abortion is not empowering at all. And so what I would encourage men to do is to empower her and look at her and say, you know what, I am excited for this future. I'm excited to see you become a mother. I'm excited to see me become a father. I know that there's going to be challenges. I know that this is hard on you. This is unexpected. This is unplanned. But we're going to get through this together. And to begin to sow that dreams and love and life into those women. And I will tell you, I have seen women change their mind because of a change in their significant others. Um, there's statistics out there that say that two out of three women would have not made an abortion decision if their significant other would have been supportive, which that to me just shows we've been telling men, step to the side, step to the side. And then we have women saying, well, if he would have stood up, I wouldn't have done it. And that to me just shows the psychological warfare that's happening in this pregnancy decision and how well Satan has really impacted um, and driven that wedge there. Because at the end of the day, you have two parents that have lost a child. And because fathers are encouraged to step to the side, fathers are also not encouraged to mourn the loss of that child. Um, and so that can be really difficult. And I have seen, I have seen men in their, it, at, at the end of their life, Nick and Luke, that are in their later years that still have that pain of a decision that they made in their 20s and 30s of sacrificing a child. Wow. Yeah, I think that image, I mean, Truly, Ashley, everything you are saying throughout this whole episode is very profound, but I think this really gets down to some fundamental questions of what we think about man and womanhood, and it is complicated thinking about masculinity and femininity and the history, but there is a sort of, I think, instead of kind of talking about these things in an abstract way, the way you just framed it is like there are two parents that are losing a child. Um, that That's a sobering thought to think about, like just how in a contrast to the way, like just like you've said, men step aside. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm finding myself at a, a lack of words in a lot of ways. Um, I do think it's, there's, there's so much to consider throughout this whole podcast episode of what you've talked about, but I, I find myself kind of sitting back and going, 
wow, I, I have some thinking to do, changing thinking and how I view things and also how to speak about these things. Um, before we move on, uh, really, I guess there was one other question that I had. I also, I had a couple quotes from Eugene Cho and thou shalt not be a jerk. It wasn't a book that I was reading intending to talk about abortion, but he kind of talks about it. Um, you've already covered a lot of the content of the first quote, but I, I do want to mention the second one. I just think it's a great quote. Um, he says to support both the equality of women and the dignity of the unborn feels like a very lonely place to be, but I know I'm not alone. He says, may we press on. But um, before we go, were there any more things that you want to talk about with practicality? I know I was asking the kind of the last question was, let's say an average person wants to help women who do not want to get an abortion. And let's say they don't know anybody who's like, I'm thinking about getting an abortion. What, what can he or she do? Uh, you know, do they give money somewhere? Do they volunteer somewhere? Is it prayer? What, what else, what would you recommend? Well, you have actually walked into my closing thoughts perfectly. And it almost gave me goosebumps because you just said something. You just said, um, I don't know anybody that has gone through an abortion decision or is wrestling with an abortion decision. But um, I've listened to a couple of your episodes and I kind of get the feeling that most of your listeners um, are either Christian, have attended church, or currently attend a church or are kind of church adjacent. Is that kind of along the lines? that your audience is? Yeah, I think think that describes a large amount of the audience. Um, I think there are also people who are not Christians, but just curious about what Christians think about things. Um, So, but I think that's, you kind of hit it for the majority of our listeners. Okay, cool. Well, then I'm going to give you and Nick a pop quiz. Um, And we kind of just talked a lot about the financial side of it. And so it might be tricky you might be inclined to answer this question in a certain way because we did just talk about, um, uh, like you were saying from Eugene's uh, book, which is really great. Thou shall not be a jerk is a really great read. I encourage people to read it, um, especially in our polarized times, um, as he's talking about, um, you know, half of abortions are among poor women. So I pose a question to you and Nick. You get one one guess each. Um, Of all the women that um, have had an abortion in the U.S., what do two out of three of those women have in common? So if you have, you go to Planned Parenthood and in that hour you have three appointments within the hour, what do two out of those three women on average have in common? Uh, I have a pretty good guess. Oh yeah, Nick said. Yeah, I think what Nick said. spoiled it, yes. Yep. Well, I think you kind of <laughs> uh, gave us some clues there. <laughs> I kind of did. I kind of did. Um, so, so yes, over 70% of women um, who uh, have an abortion at that time indicate that they are Christians. So when you kind of set up your question, not to criticize you at all, it's a great, it's a great setup. But when you said, um, you know, well, what do you do? I, I'm not really around people that are wrestling with that. Well, if you attend church or if you are church adjacent, and even if you're not in the church and you are a seeker or outside the, you know, post-evangelical, whatever, you are around people that are wrestling with abortion decisions. Um, on average, you know, a quarter of the people in your church have either had an abortion in the last few years or will have an abortion in the next couple years. And so we are interacting with these people on a day-to-day basis. Um, 
So on my last kind of closing here about what are the something practical to do um, is really a call to the church and to individuals. A um, couple more statistics. Sorry, I know it's dry. Um, oh, this is great. But uh, 63% of women that have had an abortion attended church more than once a month at the time of that abortion. 51% um, of women um, surveyed agree that women do not have a ministry prepared to discuss options during an unplanned pregnancy. Um, of those who had an abortion, only 7% discussed their abortion with someone at church. Um, and only 38% of women, again, this is church-going women, um, would consider the church a safe place to discover pregnancy options. So basically, um, oh, and then more than half of churchgoers, 52%, um, who have had an abortion report that nobody at their church knows that they had a pregnancy terminated. So basically, if we were to overturn Roe v. Wade, tomorrow, you know, kind of our main driving point with this whole discussion has been, you know, what about Roe v. Wade? Basically, if it were to be overturned tomorrow, I don't think our churches are ready. I really don't. I think that we have failed women that have had abortions in their past. I think that we have failed women that are contemplating abortion right now. Um, and I think that shows in the statistics. Um, Wow. I will say before I kind of go into my last kind of practical things that pregnancy centers such as mine and many other centers um, have uh, healing programs for men and for women. Um, I would encourage you if you have an abortion in your past to reach out to your local pregnancy center, look up support after abortion online, um, go to abortionchangesyou.com, any of those things, um, send me an email. I can get you some great resources because at the end of the day, the abortion is done. You've made your choice, whether it was last year, last month, or 20 years ago. And there are so many people that have written resources um, that are want to work with you, um, including myself. I'd love to help you that want to help heal from those abortion decisions. And that includes men, too. We have some really great men that have gone through the, the pain of an abortion and are uh, ready and willing to help other men um, heal from that. Um, Fatherhood Aborted is also a really great book that really um, wrestles with that. Um, so, um, with that, I just want to say that um, what is exciting about being pro-life, pro-abundant life, etc., is that there are so many different avenues that we can live out these um, values in our day-to-day -day life. First of all, we need to pray. We need to pray for our community. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for our friends. We need to pray for our colleges. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us ways in our everyday life to stand for life. I know there's some women that pray, God, if I see a pregnant woman, give me the words to say. And sometimes they'll just go to pregnant women. If they work in a grocery store, they'll have a pregnant woman checking out and they'll say, hey, I noticed you don't have a, you know, a wedding ring on, you know, congratulations on being pregnant. You know, I'm so glad that you um, are having a healthy, happy baby. Um, so we need to lean into the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, I will tell you, I've had some crazy experiences of the Holy Spirit just saying, give that girl this book, give this girl a card. And the crazy stories that come out of that is just amazing. And that's all because of the Holy Spirit. Um, no matter what job you have, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you work at a hospital, if you work at a grocery store, um, no matter what your talents are, you can always speak life in your day-to-day -day life and encourage moms, no matter what. Don't ever assume that you know that they're happy to be pregnant if you know if they're pregnant. You know, we should always be speaking life and talking about children and pregnancy in a positive, uh, a positive light, including those that have had abortions, for sure. Um, you can volunteer with your local pregnancy center. I know my pregnancy center, we have lots of different ministries and lots of different areas for people with different talents to get plugged into. You can offer to babysit for single moms so they can either go to school to finish their degree or have nights off so that they can keep having their hobbies. Again, going back to that identity thing. 
Um, you can donate to pro-life or adoption ministries. You can give free legal um, or money financial advice if finances are your thing. Offer to host single moms and give them a budgeting class or to um, get them hooked up with scholarships. Um, you can advocate at your local college or community college to have a low income or a free childcare program. There are statistics nationwide that show that that is actually one of the biggest influences on whether women have an abortion or not is if they have childcare at their local high school, or community college, or um, university. Um, one of the important pieces, especially, I think, um, is to educate yourself about all these issues and then turn around and educate the next generation. Planned Parenthood has done an outstanding job at getting into schools, getting onto social media, and educating people. Um, and so we spend a lot of time at our center kind of re-educating people on some of the things that they've read or heard or seen online. One of the classic examples is Planned Parenthood has a sex education curriculum that um, it, it's on their YouTube and it kind of educates about um, uh, different types of abortions and for the first trimester abortion um, they depict the cartoon pro pro uh, projects a uh, third month pregnant person and I kid you not, the baby in the abortion is literally, you remember the movie Finding Nemo where they just have the little red circle? <laughs> it's literally that. Whereas if you know anything about prenatal development by three months, there's baby movement, there's brain waves, there's hands and feet, there's all kinds of things by three months. So educate yourself on what teenagers are learning today and then you in turn go around, go to your youth groups, go to your local schools, go to your Sunday school classes and educate the next generation that is coming up because they're going to be the most. They're going to have the most medical and societal information um, at their fingertips, and I believe they could definitely be a generation that changes this whole um, discourse. Um, and then again, um, look at your churches. Um, we may think my pastor has mentioned a couple times that he's pro-life, life is sacred, he says the right Bible verses, but what programs or ministries does your church have that actually encourage or assist moms that are facing a pregnancy decision? Um, is the topic only discussed in a negative, abortion is wrong, abortion is murder um, terminology, or is there actually life-giving information about how to have healing after an abortion has been chosen? Because as I just proved, abortions are happening in our churches. Um, and then what men's programs are there to foster healthy fatherhood, educate them about the importance of, uh, importance of standing against abortion, since the media has encouraged them to do the opposite. Um, and then I would encourage you, if you go to a church, to ask your pastor, why don't we have a post-abortion ministry? Because unless men and women have gone through an abor abortion healing ministry, they are much more likely to repeat having abortions in the future because there's that hiddenness and that shame of they haven't mourned and uh, memorialized that loss, so they're much more likely to go back to it again. Um, and so that's the thing that I love about Jesus is that he gave us the morals. He let us know that abortion is wrong, murder is wrong, but then he also calls us to love others. And um, my our, our pregnancy center's motto is putting compassion for life into action. And so that's my encouragement to everybody here today is to um, put the, the passion and the compassion that we have for the unborn to put it into action and do something about it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for going over those things. I I would try to summarize them, but I can pretty much guarantee I would probably miss several things. <laughs> so I will probably be listening to this myself a time or two afterward because I know truly you've been a, a source for information and uh, insight and wisdom. So thank you so much for for taking the time to be with Nick and I and and obviously the time ahead of time just accumulating your notes and statistics and um you know nick and i do this all the time kind of in a very uh 
flippant way, like lighthearted way. But this is intense. This is not an easy topic to just dive into, and you really guide, you really guided us well. Or I don't know, is that a word? Guided. Yeah, what do you think, Nick? Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, well, that's any any final question. I feel like that that concludes this well, unless there's anything we're missing. Ashley, any other thoughts that I'm missing about anything in our episode today? Uh, no, I think we covered. You know, I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I think we did. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for hanging with us this week uh, for our for our episode, Nuance Ground Zero. Uh, if you come back next week, we'll, we will be having the episode Big Word here. And also, this episode is coming out in June. So for our Patreon supporters, we have our bonus episode in June, Space Hippos. So a little bit different <laughs> different uh, level of intensity. But yeah, if, if you guys want to check us out, we'd love to see you there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later.